Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. I am excited that you get to spend time with me and my friend, Donald Miller, today on the show. Don is the CEO of StoryBrand, a marketing company, and uh, Business Made Simple, an online platform that teaches business professionals every single thing they need to know on how to grow a business and enhance their personal value in the open market. He's the host of the Business Made Simple podcast and the author of several books, including the bestseller, Building a Story Brand. He lives and works in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife, Elizabeth, and he's just a good dude. Please welcome Donald Miller to the show. Hello, Don. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm super happy that you are on. Uh, last time I was in Nashville, you were generous, invited me over to the house. I got to see it. You have a beautiful place. Uh, but more, I think I just like the fact that you have a porch that uh, we got to <laughs> sit and just catch up on uh, every time I get to see it. I just feel like I'm being poured into. So I'm excited for today and this conversation. Yeah, me too. I've been looking forward to this. So I gave uh, Tops of the Trees overview of your bio, but I like to ask if you were to introduce yourself at a cocktail party or uh, were attempting to represent why you believe yourself to be on the planet, one of the two, how do you either introduce yourself or why? how would you describe the reason why you think you're here? I pr- Well, if somebody asked me, why do you think I'm here? That would be different than introducing myself. I tend to kind of hide in the shadows at cocktail parties, so I'm trying to just not be noticed. But in terms of, of why I'm here, the first thing I would actually say is I really do believe that you get to decide why you're here. That, that, it, that I, 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 there are probably some people, Dave, that God gives them some sort of mission. But I think mostly God says, hey, let's you know, you know, it's a broken world. How do you want to change it? And I'd love to partner with you on that. So that's a big paradigm shift for a lot of people. So, you know, I think you have agency to determine why you're on the planet. For me, I wake up every morning. I read my eulogy. I wrote my eulogy a long time ago. I read it almost every morning, probably four out of seven mornings. And uh, it defines three stories that I will have lived with my life. One of them is the story of my family. And that story is about a retreat center that we have built here in Nashville, Tennessee. You can't pay to go here. It's not like a, a, a place like that, but our family comes, our friends come, different authors come. You will come probably do a book reading here sometime. Artists come for pop-up galleries. We have a house, we have an event space, and we have a, a guest house. And the reason we designed that was one, we really, we really liked, you know, interacting with people and kind of running a bed and breakfast. But the main reason was gave our family something to do. My, my wife, my daughter and I, she's she's six months old. So she's being born into this story about interacting with the world in a really beautiful way. It gives us an excuse to have some sort of ambition and have fun. The second one is my company. My company is called Business Made Simple. We are a small business coaching company. Uh, we have about 800 coaches and marketing experts that help small businesses. In order to coach them, I designed all sorts of frameworks that help coaches. 
And I would like to see those frameworks taught in a university someday under the banner of the Business Made Simple School for Entrepreneurs. So that, that is a story that I've designed for my life that I'm living into. And we have a meeting next week with the president of a major university. Our stuff is already being taught at Vanderbilt. You know, it's, there's some things that are happening on that. And then the third story is, is called Build the Middle Class. I have done very little on this, except I'm writing a white paper on uh, eight pieces of legislation that if the government came together and passed these, we would solve a lot of problems and explaining to the American people, look, these guys are incentivized not to actually get anything done. They're incentivized to go fight with each other. And we have to change those incentives if we want to, we want to repair our nation. Those three stories are the reason I'm on the planet because I've decided those three stories are the reason I'm on the planet. And one of the things that reading my eulogy every morning does is it tells me you don't have time for any more. You've got <laughs> 30 years left on the planet. Don't add anything to this. This is it. This is all you got. Now, if you pivot, you can pivot. It's up to you. It doesn't matter. It's your, your life. You do what you want with it. But I really like having that kind of focus in my life. It gives me what I call narrative traction. Narrative traction is when you are interested in your own story. When you wake up every morning and you go, it's going to be a hard day, but I can't wait to see how it ends, right? And I'm going to do everything I can to be a hero inside of this story and make something really cool happen. I, that This is the way I've lived for about 10 years. I'm 50 years old. So I've lived this way, well, actually about from 37 or so to 50. And that 13 years, I got, I got more done than I did in the previous 37. I did not struggle with depression. I did not struggle with anxiety. I, I didn't struggle with any of that. Because I think when you design a story for your life and you live into it, you actually, you actually feel a deep sense of meaning. And uh, my new book, Hero on a Mission, explains everything I just said, how you can do that for your own life as well. So why am I here? I'm here to live those three stories. And I suppose I'm also here to explain why I'm living those three stories and how you can design stories of your own. Oh, man, I love it. Story is such a big part of who you are and how you teach and how you live. Uh, you in this book, but also just in life, have talked about these four characters that exist in every story, four roles that we can play in our own lives, victim, villain, hero, and guide. Would you explain just a little bit about these four archetypes and which, which of them leads to our demise, how we can move from something that maybe doesn't serve us to something that helps us succeed and uh, you know anything else that someone needs to know about the roles that we play? Yeah, you know, I, I, I discovered these four roles by studying story structure in order to write books. You and I write books. You know how hard it is to keep people interested in your book. You got to keep them turning the page. Yes. And I discovered, you know, years ago that the best way to do that is to understand how stories work and and tell people a story and get them to turn the page, both in fiction and nonfiction. What was interesting is in the 10 years I was studying story, I discovered that there are really four major characters in almost any story. There's the victim, the villain, the hero, and the guy. And that if you play the victim in a story, your in your life, your story will turn out the way it turns out for the victim, which is they are a bit part. They don't transform. They don't get rewarded. Nothing really good happens to them. If you play the villain in your own life, uh, people mount up against you. They circle up against you and they, they, they are, they're either going to kill you or throw you in jail. Right. That's the, that's the way we like the story to end as it relates to the villain. If you play the hero it's very difficult. It's challenging. It's sometimes scary, 
but you transform into a better version of yourself in order to get what you want and you experience a deep sense of meaning. And if you play the guide, you actually leverage your hero identity and accomplishments to help somebody else. And the guide actually experiences the most meaning in stories. What, what the big epiphany for me came several years ago when I realized these four characters exist in stories because they actually exist in each of us. It's not in, in stories. There's the victim over there, the villain over there, the hero over here, the guy over there. But that's not the way it is in real life. The way it is in real life is the victim is in you, the villain is in you, the hero is in you, and the uh, guide is in you. And if we can understand what our victim voice and our victim identity sounds like, we can be self-aware enough to not shine too much light on that that character within us. Uh, you know, when and, and basically a victim just believes they're doomed, right? A victim wakes up and says. I, I can't. I, I'm doomed. Nothing good happens to me. Um, the world is out to get me. Bad things happen to me as a kid or at my work or whatever. Therefore, my life is going to come to nothing. That identity will ensure that your life comes to nothing. And Dave, I spent 10 years identifying mostly as a victim. And I, I, I grew up very hard. We, we were very, very poor. Uh, I learned to lay down and play dead around bullies. Uh, I sought comfort food, ended up being 387 pounds at the heaviest. Uh, now I'm 210, so I'm no longer fat, I'm just chubby. And you know the, the, and, and the more I identified as that victim, the worse things got until I started realizing, wait a second, story is teaching you something here. And you know, transferred into more of a heroic identity. I, I'm convinced I play all four roles every day. But the, the more you actually identify as the hero in the story, the more you see life and interpret life through the hero's eyes, the better your life actually gets. And it took me 10 years to get a book down that explained it because it was just, I don't know why, it was just very, very hard for me to write. Uh, but as I started the book last year, really liked how it flowed and showed it to the publisher. And they said, no, this is, this is very good. And we, we published it. So that's the gist of the book. And inside the book, it explains those characters so you can be more self-aware. And then it explains what the hero does, how they see life, how to live life. Then it actually has a life plan and a daily planner inside of it. So you can do a month or two and train your, retrain your brain on how to, how to see life the way a hero sees life and do life the way a hero does life. I, you know, I've always said, like, if you go out looking for evidence of life, being hard yeah. or you not getting the, the right end of the stick or whatever. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, you'll find that evidence and uh, you'll find the evidence of the opposite as well. So in, in a world where you are an advocate of agency, right? Hey, you have control over the story that you are telling. And uh, sometimes things happen that uh, make it harder for us to feel like uh, our agency matters. Uh, a pandemic, as a for example, shows up. How do you stay in your truth that, hey, I am the commander of my ship and I can make it through whatever ends up coming my way, even if it's uh, a global pandemic, which I've never experienced <laughs> before. Like, how do, how do you like maintain forward motion, momentum, uh, you know, like some kind of connection to meaning when things all of a sudden feel super upside down? Yeah, there's a question that, that my team has, has been programmed to ask. And we all do it now intuitively, and it has made all the difference at my company on how we view life. And, and even my wife and I have set a default mode. And whenever something difficult happens, 
global pandemic, you know, hard thing. The, the question to ask is, what does this make possible? What does this make possible? So, you know, global pandemic is a great, a great, uh, you know, example. We had done, my company, my small business had done 13 or so million dollars the year before COVID. We were 80% dependent on people getting on airplanes and flying to Nashville for workshops. And so you, you do the math. We're going to do about $4 million the next year. And we kind of got together and said, are we scared? Yes, we're scared. Are we nervous? Absolutely. Do we feel doomed? Yeah, we feel doomed. We definitely are tempted by the victim mindset, which is, by the way, a coping mechanism. It's a comforting thing to view ourselves as a victim because it, we think it takes us out of our own responsibility. But it doesn't. Your responsibility stays on you and you suffer the consequences. But we said, OK, well, what does this make possible? And we just kind of went around the room and said, actually, people have asked us to do live streams and to attend online for five years. And we've just never done it. And what if we figure it out and we do it? And there was another thing of, Don, you're at home. You got nothing going on. People have always wanted you to teach writing. Why don't we do a live stream where you teach writing? And uh, we said, what if we cut the price of our, our product in half or, or by, by two thirds so that people can attend online and they don't have to be here. Plus they save hotel flight, all this kind of stuff. We ended up doing 16.5 million the year that we were supposed to be doomed. That's the power of asking, what does this make possible? So let's say you're in a knockdown drag out with your wife, you know, it's clearly burning and going to, to stop and say, okay, what does this argument make possible for me? Well, it makes possible that I could actually learn something about myself. It makes possible that I could do whatever. You know, uh, to try to find that the bright side to a difficult situation is actually a heroic characteristic. Heroes are always in tight situations, and they are always running toward the pinpoint of light in the distance. That's what makes the story interesting. Right. And that's what makes us admire and love these heroes. So we can actually adapt these puzzles. Does it always work out? No, it doesn't work out. But even though when it doesn't work out, sometimes when it doesn't work out, we ask ourselves, what does this make possible? So you do a postmortem on the crisis and then you actually say, what do I what do I learn? Well, if you do that, th then it wasn't a failure. You, it was a learning opportunity. So there, there are just things that heroes do uh, in their lives that actually make the quality of their life much, much better. The actual experience of their life gets much, much better. Yeah, I, I was uh, doing a speech today, virtually, same kind of thing. Uh, you know, travel isn't as much a thing. There aren't as many in-person conferences. In the conversation, I was talking about the power of imagination in part, the quote from Les Brown that hope in the future is power in the present. If you can see something hopeful in your horizon, yeah. you have power agency, you believe yourself to have some momentum in real time. But there's something often in the circumstances of our real time that can compromise our ability to have an imagination for what can come next. And I think that that act of um, of agency, but also of just believing that there, what good can come from this, or how is this for me, or whatever you want to say, and reframing the thing that you're working through, uh, ends up being so important. Is that the thing that's the difference between someone who's stuck and someone who's moving forward? Like, what what is that like big difference maker for someone who 
finds traction in hard times versus someone who stays stuck in hard times. The, the temptation, I think, for all of us is to see the world in binary terms. It is either a meaningful life or a meaningless life. It is either a happy life or a sad life. I am either a good person or I'm a bad person. I am either an undisciplined person with no will or a disciplined person with extreme will. None, nothing that I just said is remotely true. Nothing. The truth is you're both. It is both a hard life and a beautiful life, right? It is both, you are both incredibly disciplined and also in certain contexts, undisciplined, yeah. right? And to be able to have a balanced view of yourself and a balanced view of the world, which is hard because it requires nuance, is really how we want to approach life. And then we want to just get better at the things that we want to get better at. Uh, you know, I, to me, that that's the key. The, the temptation, again, is that victim voice inside of us that says, I'm doomed. And, and let's actually analyze that victim voice. What is that victim voice doing? Well, I, I happen to believe that Alfred Adler was right, that the majority of motives that you have are actually self-serving. In other words, you want to feel like a victim. And the reason you want to feel like a victim is because it actually does serve you. Let's be really honest. If we are a victim, we don't have to take responsibility for our actions. If we are a victim, somebody else might do some work for us. If we are a victim, we're letting ourselves off the hook. If we are a victim, we may in fact attract resources. However, that's all wonderful stuff in terms of you getting what you want. There is a downside. And the downside is the victim never transforms into a better version of themselves. The victim burns people out because they get tired of taking responsibility for that person's action. And the victim is largely unattractive. You know what the biggest thing, here's the biggest moment that helped me in my morbid obesity. I'm sitting there, I'm not sitting there, I'm standing there in the uh, bathroom of the house that I was renting with five other guys or four other guys, there were five of us. And I'm shaving my own head because I have no money for a haircut, right? I mean, I, I am one week away from being homeless and I hate the way I look. I'm 387 pounds. And none of the girls at church really like me and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, Dave, if it was God. I don't know what it was. But suddenly I knew. I knew for a fact that, and this is going to sound so pragmatist and so base, but this is what I realized. Women are not attracted to victims. And as soon as I realized it, I stopped. In other words, what I really wanted was to attract resources and nurturing and comfort, and I was just using the wrong tactic. So as soon as I realized, actually, they're kind of attracted to people who have their lives together and can hold down a job and you know can be strong to defend them if that's what they want, but also tender enough to not hurt them and, and kind of be a nurturing. They're attracted to a hero in a story, not a victim in a story. And when that happened, I began the process of losing more than 100 pounds. And it, it was not an easy process. I still went back and forth because it's hard to, to deny those coping mechanisms when they come in. They're very comforting. But for the most part, I began seeing myself as somebody. What did I want? I wanted the exact same thing. What I realized, what, what I was doing to get what I want wasn't working. And it wasn't going to start working. And the change happened pretty much the transformation began instantaneously. Yeah. The path to help me transform happened in a moment. 
you know, that's the question I would ask if somebody who's like tired of seeing themselves as a victim. Say, what what are you getting? What do you think you're getting out of this? Because you actually only do the things that you think will help, will, will better your life or help you in some way. And ask yourself if this tactic is working. And if it's not, just try a different tactic. There's nothing wrong with wanting to, be, to attract resources or wanting people to be around you or nurture you. All that stuff is p- perfectly pure. It's just the way that you're doing it isn't working. And let's try to find some other way. Heidi and I are doing a, a fitness challenge in real time, and we are encouraging people to try things they have not tried before. There's often resistance because we've been trained uh, over time program. Change is hard. And we've just said, uh, hey, uh, why don't you try it for two weeks? And if after two weeks, you decide you want to go back to what already isn't working, well, you're absolutely welcome to do it. But what's two weeks? Just try it for two weeks. And it's, it's wild because we're so adverse to change. But if you can just expose yourself to the possibility that something else may in fact produce a different result. You often get a different one, but uh, it starts with actually being open to it. So I appreciate that you are the author of a story and that you would argue that we are all authors of our own story. Right. But I know for myself, I have been someone who felt like I had my story written for me by someone else, either the programming that came out of my family of origin or society or whatever. Like, if someone who's listening is like, I don't feel like I've got agency just yet because I'm living through the stories that have been told to me by other people. Like, what are the sources of the stories that we tend to believe that currently have us not living as the hero or the guide, but instead as the victim or the villain? Well, there's a natural transformation that takes place in life from victim to hero. From victim to hero to guide is the natural transformation that you take in a life. So uh, my daughter is six months old. She's the light of my life. You you got to meet her. Yes, I did. She was even you know, much younger than six months old. And um, she is the definition of a victim. I mean, you know, she can't walk. She can't talk. She can't feed herself. She, can't, she is a victim. And, and that is by nature. That's the way life is supposed to be. And her parents are basically dictating 100% of what her story is. And we will continue to do that. Uh, you know, definitely for the next six, eight months. And then we will slowly introduce her to her own agency. But probably not until she's 19, 20, 21, will she then accept and have her own agency to live her own story. What happens is parents sort of dictate our story. And then we get into school and school dictates the story of our education and uh, our career is dictated largely by our education post high school. Uh, then we have these biological longings. And so those biological longings plus culture dictate a story to us about seeking a mate. And then we have kids and life itself, biology dictates the story about us becoming a mother or a father. And then what's amazing is we, we may live a slight story as a career and then it's over. And what happens is Culture, your parents, universities, corporations, they no longer give you any story scripts. And so what happens is you're actually metaphorically sitting in the theater of your own mind, watching a blank screen because the last story that you lived ended. I mean, the kids are now older and you you didn't realize you could actually put a new story on the screen. So what midlife crisis actually is is a person sitting in the theater of their own mind, watching a blank screen and feeling restless and bored. What typically happens in midlife crisis then is 
corporations sell us a Porsche 911. <laughs> Am I right? And you and you just sort of do these things that and you know, and you play golf or whatever, you just start doing things. And basically, you know, Victor Frankel and Sigmund Freud, two great psychologists, were alive at the same time. And Victor Frankel, and in Vienna at the same time. And Victor Frankel, uh, well, Sigmund Freud was going around saying, look, man's dominant desire, what fuels him, what motivates him, is the desire for pleasure. It's obvious. Let's look around. Everybody's seeking pleasure and comfort and whatever. Victor Frankl came along and said, no, I don't believe it. The dominant desire for human beings is not the desire for pleasure. It's the desire for meaning. And when they cannot find meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. That's good. And I think that just paints our a picture of our society perfectly. Yeah, when you can't find meaning, you know, you're going to buy the sports car, you're going to do, you know, you're going to do whatever, you're going to, you know, because you can't find meaning. But meaning comes when we actually dictate our own story. We decide what it's going to be and we step into it and experience narrative traction. I, I, I was asked once uh, years ago, many, many years ago, when I first started understanding these ideas, didn't know if I believed them yet, but I, I was first in, interacting with them. And a friend called and said, hey, can you get together with a friend of mine? A friend of mine traveled the country and would like to write a book about it. You traveled America and wrote a book about it. Um, would you just talk to him? He really wants to be. I said, sure, absolutely. So we met at this coffee shop. I lived in Portland, Oregon at the time. And as we talked, I realized this young man is a nihilist. They believe that life is futile and meaningless. You know, he's quoting Nietzsche. He's quoting Kierkegaard. By the way, Nietzsche wasn't a nihilist. I mean, he, you know, he was categorized that way, but he actually had incredible narrative traction in his definition of the Ubermensch and all this kind of stuff. He, he had stuff going on. But uh, my friend said he was a nihilist. And, you know, he said, kept saying it, life is meaningless, Mike is meaningless. And in Portland, you know, it's such a crazy city that the, the, the motto of the town could be life is meaningless. Like the state flag of Oregon could be a marijuana leaf and life is meaningless on the flag. And everybody would go, yeah, it's pretty much right. You know, that's kind of how it works. And so I said to him something that I should not have said, Dave, I know better now, but he said, life is meaningless. I said, what if life is not meaningless? What if just your life is meaningless? <laughs> what, I, what I meant by that was, what if what you have done with your life is giving you the experience of meaningless, meaninglessness? What if the story that you are writing day after day has no plot? What if the hero doesn't want something, which you have to have in order to have a plot? What if the hero is un unwilling to engage conflict? What if the hero is unwilling to transform? What if the hero is demeaning other people and so becoming the villain? What if the hero is saying, I'm doomed, and so is now playing the victim? What if what you are doing with your life is giving you an experience of meaninglessness? Now, that sounds like a morbid thing to say, except it isn't. It's actually the most hopeful thing anybody could hear, because here's the thing about stories. They can be edited. They can be changed. And your life can actually be edited and changed so that you actually enjoy the experience and you experience a transformation and you experience a deep sense of meaning. That conversation, while it wasn't very fun or friendly for him, was life changing for me, because I think at that point I actually started to believe it. Yeah. And I started to actually change the way I was living. And from that day, that season, I should say, to these 13, 14 years later, Dave, I have never, ever, ever experienced a sense of meaninglessness. Now, I've been 
devastatingly sad because a friend took his life uh, because some some hard things happened. But even in that sadness, there was a sense that this life has a purpose for me and a calling for me, and I'm going to learn from this and transform and be better. I would take a devastatingly sad day in which I experience meaning over a day where I'm happy because I'm distracted by pleasure any day. It's a deeper sense of gratification. And so um, I believe very much that we have the personal agency to actually stop what we're doing, analyze our story, make slight adjustments so that the story works better, step into it and actually experience it on a meaning, meaningful level. It resonates so much for me. I, I don't think it coincidental that in the midst of meaning not existing at the end of my time at the Walt Disney Company, I built a 1969 Ford Bronco. It was an expensive build, I'll tell you that. But it was probably and, meaningful because it's narrative traction, right? Well, here's the thing. It was uh, more about pleasure than it was about meaning. What ah, was meaningful it. was leaving the company for something that scared the life out of me, but ultimately challenged me and had me growing in entrepreneurship. So uh, meaning ended up coming in leaving, not in having a truck built. The truck was the distraction from the absence of meaning. And it was in receiving the truck that I was in part recognizing, oh, wow, I got to actually make a move, leave a career for a calling. Let's go do something that is more meaningful. And man, I felt completely different, though I still, I think, distract myself with pleasure when I don't like to have to handle the things that don't feel meaning uh, filled in my well, own sometimes life. Ple but pleasure has a context when you're living a meaningful story. That's it's right. often just rest. Yes. And I will take it. I'm here for it as much as anything else. Yeah, me else. too. Me too. From a practical standpoint, what does it look like to live like a hero? I mean, I'm assuming that it isn't necessarily as romantic and daring and courageous as one might think, but it could be, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? Well, what I do, I have a in the book, there's a plan and it, it has several components. The first component is your eulogy. So you actually write from the perspective of your life being over what your life was about. And there's some formulaic ideas that I throw at you in the book in order to stimulate the writing of your eulogy. The next thing is uh, three different worksheets. They all fit on one page. Uh, well, one page each. Your 10-year vision, your five-year vision, and your one-year vision for your life. And there are subplots, subplots like your personal health, your family, your career, your, you know, your spirituality, things like that. And I have a vision for what I want to get done in the 10 years uh, that I've got before me uh, and the five years and the one year. So they actually get, get more and more defined as it gets closer to one. Uh, and I read those every morning. And then I've got some goal setting worksheets that are optional. But if you have a goal to lose some weight or run a marathon or whatever, you can fill that out. And there's all sorts of little tips and tricks and strategies that are, make it much more likely for you to actually hit your goal. And, uh, and then finally, there's actually a day planner page that you fill out every day. That entire process takes about 15 minutes. And every day when I do that process, I am reminded of what my story is about, what role I play in that story. And I know exactly what I need to do that day to put something on the plot. To me, that has really saved the quality of my life. And, and in ways, it might have actually saved my life because when we see ourselves as a victim, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And at some point, you just can't keep going. And, you know, we know what happens there. You either 
you either numb yourself with drugs and alcohol or, you, you know, you, or, or, the, or worse. Yeah. And so I, I think I, I, I do think I might have gone that direction. I wasn't there yet, but I do think I might have gone that direction. Now I experience meaning. What's what's really fascinating to me, Dave, is Viktor Frankl. Much of what I'm talking about comes from Viktor Frankl's ideas on how to experience meaning because he gave us a very practical formula. And the morning routine that I just talked about installs that practical formula into your life. What he doesn't do, what Viktor Frankl doesn't do is actually answer the question, what is the meaning of life? He doesn't answer it. What he says is, you know, basically, I don't know what the meaning of life is, but here's how you can feel it. Mm. And that to me was fascinating. And what I've discovered is that my even my theological interest, because, you know, I used to write Christian memoirs. I'm less interested in answers than I used to be. And, and, I, and I'm pretty convinced that we don't have the answers and our brains, as brilliant as they are, as, as you know, as supercomputers, and they are supercomputers. There's stuff that's just bigger than you and I can really ever understand. Yeah, and and it's going to drive you crazy to try to figure it out. Uh, I, I now think of meaning not unlike love. And Dave, you could sit and read an 800-page textbook on the neuroscience of love, dopamine and the amygdala, and all the stuff that happens. And the more you understand about love, uh, does not equate or correlate to actually feeling in love. Yeah. So you can sit and study all of it and then you're not going to feel in love. You're going to feel in love when, when you walk into the gym and you see somebody and you go, Oh, hello. <laughs> you know, that's that. And all that stuff is going to happen to you, but you knowing what happens doesn't make it happen. Yeah. And I, I equate that to so many people who study philosophy. They study Nietzsche. They study Kierkegaard. They study theologians. I spent years studying theologians thinking that if I study this stuff, I'm actually going to feel meaning, but you don't. You only feel meaning when you live a story, period. You only feel meaning when you live a story. And meaning is healing and transformational. So good. I. It's funny. Like We teach similar things in different contexts. The thing I've been talking about for anything around my book has been this question I ask how do I feel about myself when I'm by myself? And uh -huh. the idea of living in integrity, like doing everything I can in this day to act like the person I would need to be to become the person that I meant to be. I love that. Yeah. Is, is the way that I feel great about myself. And when I don't, when there's dissonance, that's where I've got shame or regret or no motivation, self-doubt. I'm trying to close that gap. And what you're saying in the same kind of way, in a different set of words, is like it, when you only can control this day, you're reminding yourself in the morning of what it feels like to play the role, play the hero role, show up for your life in the way that you ought to. Similar kind of thing, but that well, ends does, up being well, not the just answer. similar, not just similar, Dave. I mean, you know, brothers from another mother. I mean, you know, largely this, you know, we're all stumbling upon the same thing. Because I, I would actually say that what what you need, what you need in order to play the hero, if there's a consistent characteristic, it is courage. And, you know, as the title of your book says, built through courage. And imagine this, you know, what is the most courageous perspective you can possibly have? I wrestle with this all the time. In fact, I wrestled with it just the last couple of days. The, the most courageous thing you can possibly do is act as if this life matters. Act as, because you don't know if it does. We just don't know. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, it, it might, and I'm somebody who prays to Jesus, so don't, don't write me letters. 
at, at there, there are times when you go, well, but does it actually matter? What, you know, does my life mean anything? And of course, what is that temptation? That temptation is, well, if life doesn't mean anything and you don't matter, let's eat ice cream, let's eat cake, and let's watch Netflix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just this sort of, it, it, but it takes courage to say, no, this life matters. My voice matters. I can put something on the plot. And when I die, it will mean something in the cosmos somehow. And uh, I, I think that, that that takes courage. You know what's and, interesting? Sorry, I'm interrupting, but I, like, no. I'm excited about the other side of this coin because I've myself just come through something in the last two years where so much of what I thought was capital T truth and would never change in my marriage and where I was going to work having changed Tyler Durden quote, it's not until you lose yeah. everything that you're free to do every anything, right? Like they're, they're in yeah. some ways in uh, reframing what actually matters or what is actually true has been some freedom to define what matters in a way that is more about agency than it is about dependency on things that have yes. historically mattered. And so um, there has been something, I think, in the gift of the pandemic, if you can classify it as such, to ask you know, what, what normal ought to look like in the future now that we've had to pause and reassess what is important and what isn't, or um, any of these kinds of things. I think sometimes we end up facing hardship or going through something that challenges us to inventory how we have put weight or meaning against certain yeah. things so that we now, in the freedom, can reassess that meaning in places that actually matter. Yeah, I, you know, I had a, I had something happen to me or or I guided myself through an experience. I don't know. I was walking up to the carriage house here on the property where my office is up uh, at the top of the hill here on the property. I was just doing a little self-assessment of how's Don's story going. And I asked myself a question, which I, you know, it's in my freaking book. Why, why don't I ask myself this more often? I said, um, at the end of your life, what will matter most? And I thought to myself, you know, I've got this six-month little girl six-month-old little girl, what will matter most to me, and I hope to make it to 85, so she's going to be 35 when I die. And the truth is, the average American lives to be 78.5. I have a lot of healthy habits, and I eat Mexican food. So, there, you know, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the reality is our children will probably live to be 100. That's what all the science is saying. That means if I die at 80, my daughter will be on this planet 70 years without me, 70 wow. years. And by the time she's 60, she will have a total of four or five seconds worth of mental pictures about me. And that's it. That's it. Wow. And I'm sitting there going, oh man, what that means, what that meant for me is Don, if you haven't done everything you can do to prepare this young woman to face life with courage and positivity and to seek out nurturing relationships that will protect her heart after you're gone, you have failed. You have failed. And what it did was because, because you know, my company could go to hundred million. I, I really love what I'm doing. I love it. My books can sell a lot of copies. Uh, you know, a lot can, can happen, but if you don't do this, you failed. And all of a sudden my priorities change. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? We're going to take a month off a year. I mean, you know, there'll be a year, every year we're going to take a month off. I'm home at five. Uh, I'm not going to travel as much. We are not pursuing $100 million. 
everything for the next 30 years, the priority is love her so she understands what it means to have a really great dad. Love her and teach her about what is a nurturing relationship, what is an unhealthy relationship. Help her have courage about a fallen world. Don't let her be naive. Fill her heart with joy. You know, every morning I wake up, it's my job to get the baby out of bed, change her diaper. We walk to the front door, we open the front door, we step out on the porch, and we find four or five things that are beautiful in the world. Mm. If it's raining, we say, not quite as beautiful as yesterday, but today is going to make tomorrow feel all the more special. Then we go inside, we drink a bottle of milk. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the sort of stuff I want to do. And when we actually stop and say, wait, what is my story really about? Is my story really about collecting a lot of money to buy a boat? I have nothing against boats. I have nothing against collecting a lot of money. We live in 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 a free society where you're a fool not to go out and try to do those things. But that is not going to make your story more meaningful. Yeah, It's a fun challenge. It gives you narrative traction. But we get to dictate and we get to decide what makes our story meaningful. Oh my gosh. I love every single thing you just said. And it just as a reminder, as a dad of four, like I also have with my 14 year old, I've got four more years and he will be moving out of a house. Like I know we'll stay connected. I know we'll be close, but I've got four years. Like I got to make the most of those years. Goodness gracious. All right. The book is here on a mission. It is out. Tell me in a, a quick sentence, what is the thing that you hope most that someone will get from this book where they to put it in their hands? My hope is that you've, if you've ever been tempted to think or feel that life is meaningless, you are convinced forevermore that it is not. And you can actually experience meaning by the time that you're finished reading it. I love it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Don Miller, I appreciate you, sir. If someone wants to learn more about you or your book, where do you send them on the interwebs? Uh, If you just go to businessmadesimple.com, that's my company. You'll find out everything you need to know. All right. I appreciate you so much, Don. Thank you for being here on this episode of Rise Together. Between now and next week, you are the architect of your story. You are the hero of your journey. Believe it. We will see you next week on another episode of the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.